Well, um, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. We are continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke. This morning, uh, we were uh, chuckling a little bit before the service. You know, on Mother's Day, the topic was death. And here on Father's Day, the focus of the passage is really uh, how Jesus deals with the devil and demons. So, um, so happy Father's Day. Just, uh, just a little, uh, some battle passages for us. That's maybe, maybe a little bit more on theme for the dads. I don't know. So I'm going to read most of Luke chapter 4 to us. Um, it's a little bit lengthy, but it really uh, some exciting stories that happen here. So this is Luke chapter 4 from the New English Translation. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he endured temptations from the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were completed, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in a flash all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, to you I will grant this whole realm and the glory that goes along with it, for it has been relinquished to me, and I can give it to anyone I wish. So then if you will worship me, all this will be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil brought him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And with their hands, they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. So when the devil had completed every temptation, he departed from him until a more opportune time. Now a few verses later. Now Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to tell them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled even as you heard it being read. All were speaking well of him and were amazed at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. They said, uh, isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, no doubt you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself and say, what have we heard? Uh, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown too. And he added, I tell you the truth. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up three and a half years and there was a great famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them 
but only to a woman who was a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, yet none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, forced him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But he passed through the crowd and went on his way. So he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath day he began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because he spoke with authority. Now in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! Leave us alone, Jesus the Nazarene! Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him. Silence! Come out of him! Then after the demon threw the man down in their midst, he came out of him without hurting him. They were all amazed and began to say to one another, What's happening here? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. So the news about him spread into all the areas of the region. After Jesus left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he stood over her, commanded the fever, and it left her. Immediately she got up and began to serve them. As the sun was setting... All those who had any relatives sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus. He placed his hands on every one of them and healed them. Demons also came out of many, crying out, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, uh, as we're silent together, Would you speak to us, help us to hear, speak to us about your word. Father, all over the Old Testament, we hear the wisdom repeated that to fear God is the beginning of wisdom. And so, Lord, we place our fear where it belongs. And as we consider the existence and activity of these other things, we put our trust and our hope and our well-being in your hands. Glorify yourself today in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, here's the deal. Luke, Theophilus, the guy who wrote this gospel to, basically everyone in the first century Roman Empire was convinced that there was more to this world than meets the eye. And that includes Jesus. They were convinced that there was invisible, personal activity happening all around us. They took the presence and activity of spiritual beings that can have an effect on the world that we experience with our five senses as a simple matter of fact. The cosmos in the Roman mind was swarming with 
spirits of all kinds, great and small, good and bad, chaotic, orderly, helpful and unhelpful. And here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in in Luke chapter 4, Luke leaves no doubt in his readers' minds that Jesus' mission, his very presence, puts the spiritual world on notice. They start coming out to stop him. His presence draws demons out of hiding like poison being drawn out of a snake bite. And frankly, they usually come out screaming and squirming. In fact, the devil himself, um, the chief demon, the very tempter who, who wagered with God about Job's righteousness and who, gave, who entrapped Eve with suggestive questions in the garden, he comes to Jesus in his time of preparation and prayer in the wilderness, trying to derail the whole mission. Okay, so we're talking about the devil and demons. Today, it's really not my intention to give you a a careful, philosophical, logical proof for the existence of demons or the devil. In fact, I'm pretty taken by uh, a concept from theologian Shirley Guthrie that orthodox, faithful Christianity does not believe in demons. We believe against demons. We believe in God. We put our trust and faith in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's worth taking a moment and assessing what sort of distance you feel between your normal life and these stories. Do they seem like strange? Do they seem like the movies? Do they seem like something ancient and and distant? On a typical day, are you aware of an invisible but real battle that is being waged for your heart, your mind, your attention, your affections, your relationships, your neighbor's well-being. Friends, the Apostle Paul gives us guidance to be clothed daily in spiritual armor so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. He was convinced this was a constant reality for us. What What interaction do you have with this world? Now, I know some of you have experienced stuff that you can explain in no other way. You've experienced things in your life that surely were um, evidence of the battle. You've seen and heard when these evil things sort of come out of hiding and show themselves and interact. And, and some of you, and, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm often in this category, you can remember that stuff, you've seen and heard it, but a lot of your normal life is very distant from it. You've gradually gone back to living as if it's not really there. And I, I'm up here preaching a sermon on it, but here's the deal. I, I'm, I'm not an expert on these things. I don't have a lot of detailed experience with them. I have been sort of called upon as a pastor and just in the places I've gone um, to, to fight at various times, to represent the authority and liberation of Jesus. But in, even in those moments, I, I'm, I bumble my way through, and I wonder if you can relate to that. Um, many years ago, uh, for a few years, uh, I was sort of the volunteer chaplain for uh, this place called the Bridge House. It was run by Arapahoe Douglas Mental Health Network. Now it's called All Health Network. The Bridge House is a place for short-term holds for people who are dealing with um, 
you know, are a danger to themselves, a danger to others, or otherwise uh, too removed, you know, uh, from reality, uh, and they needed some support and some help. Uh, and some of you know uh, at least one of these stories that I'm going to tell. Um, but, you know, often I, so what I would do is I would go in, there, there was a, a Christian manager at the time, so she wanted a pastor to come in. But, so I would lead a, a generic conversation on, on spiritual well-being. What, is, what does spiritual health look like? And it was really interesting in those conversations. In fact, it, if, as you maybe could imagine, people dealing with such uh, severe situations often attached what they were going through to spiritual evil. They had interacted with it in one way or another and, and felt like it was following them. And, and so, um, so we would have this discussion and then I would say, hey, I'm going to hang around for a little bit. Anyone who would, who would like can meet with me one-on-one -on -one and we can talk and pray, whatever. And so ordinarily a handful of people would want to pray with me. And, and one time, um, you know, the first guy who signed up, there were a few people on the list, he signed up and he, he described that he felt like there was, uh, you know, some spiritual evil that was oppressing him or binding him. And so, you know, I, I, I listened and, and prayed a prayer that, that he would be set free. And, you know, he, amen, he, he got up and left. The next person came in. We had been, the next person and I had been talking for about a minute when all of a sudden the alarms went off and the building went on lockdown. And, you know, I got a little nervous. Um, and, you know, the, uh, one of the staff came in and I'm like, what's going on? And they say, well, the guy that you just prayed with walked out of the room where you were meeting with him, ran right out the door, jumped the fence and took off down the, you know, down the field. I'm like, oh, that's not the freedom I was praying for. Uh, shoot. Um, another time uh, we were in the group discussion and uh, we're talking about spiritual health and one guy raises his hand and, and starts describing his situation and, and I, I, it's like the room got cold. I, you know, you could feel it. He was so, there was nothing demonstrative. Um, in fact, there was like no feeling at all in his voice and he described how you know, he had got involved in, in some stuff and he, he thought that he had, you know, demons that were controlling him. And, and uh, people mention stuff like that often, but there was something about the way he said it or, I don't know, maybe it was discernment of the Lord, but I said, okay, we're going to end our discussion here. I excused everyone else and, and, uh, and prayed with him. I didn't, you know, I wasn't able to have follow-up with any of these people. I don't know what, I don't know what happened in his life, uh, but that was the sort of thing that I encountered regularly there at the Bridge House. Um, at home, on a normal day, on a normal night, ever since my youngest, Olivia, was, was little, she's always asked me to pray at bedtime for no bad guys, no bad guys in the room, no bad guys in the house. And, uh, and early on, um, I, I realized this is an opportunity to to do spiritual warfare for my family. So in a simple, calm way, every night we pray in Jesus' name that no bad guys would be allowed in her room or in her house. And she, she is convinced. I mean, she has no doubt that those prayers are like setting a guard around the house. 
You know, and it, it, once in a while, if she has a bad dream or whatever, we can say, remember, we prayed. No, Jesus is going to protect you. Look, um, Luke 4 is not really meant to be a guidebook on spiritual warfare. But if we hear what this chapter is telling us, I think we might find ourselves in similar situations, perhaps feeling similarly ill-equipped, but we can take heart by telling these stories of conflict, conflict with the devil, conflict in, in the synagogue in Nazareth, conflict in Capernaum. The point is that we would embrace a fundamental reality, not about ourselves, but about Jesus. And if we learn this reality, we'll be more equipped for these sorts of battles. So, I just want us to notice four things that we see with Jesus in conflict, all right? Jesus in the cosmic conflict in these stories. Number one, Jesus is not ever seeking out demons. He's not ever seeking out spiritual warfare. He doesn't go looking for a fight. What, how does the chapter begin? He is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, full of the Spirit. You know what he's doing in the wilderness? He's obeying the Father. He fights when the things get in his way of his mission. He's on a mission of liberation for his people. The, the warning that I, I want to give us here is you know, not to become too focused on the demonic realm. There's this great story about Martin Luther. It's probably legendary. I don't know if it really happened, but I, I love this story. You know, he's, he's in the middle of, of uh, writing his, the German translation of the Bible. It's going to be, you know, made available to, to the general public, maybe for the first time. And one night he wakes up in his room and, and there's the devil standing there in his room. And he looks at the devil and says, oh, it's you. And he throws an ink pot at him and goes back to sleep. Love that story. He's, he's, he's unconcerned about it. He goes about his mission. You see, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, and Jesus is fasting for 40 days. Look, he's obviously physically famished after that time Luke says that, but I don't want us to confuse that for Jesus being weakened in the wilderness. He is not weakened. By fasting, he makes himself utterly dependent on God. He's in a state of physical weakness so that God's strength can be on full display. You guys, did you know that for most of church history, most believers have fasted regularly? Churches do corporate fasts. I mean, for a lot of church history, it was the standard Christian practice to fast on Tuesdays and Fridays every week. And yet in the West, we, you know, we just have so much. I don't know. We, it's, I would imagine many of you have never even considered fasting in your life. You know, I don't, don't mean to cast aspersions on you. But um, it, it's become this rare thing. And here Jesus is doing it. Why? Because in doing it, he was declaring his dependence on God. He's out in the wilderness for 40 days, and that's part of his mission. You see, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. He is retelling their story, facing similar temptations to them. When they were hungry, especially, is when they failed. 
in moments of temptation. The temptations in the wilderness are the second of two times in the entire Bible that the tempter directly interacts with someone in an attempt to alter the course of history. There's only two times in the Bible that the tempter comes. One is in the Garden of Eden when it comes to when the serpent comes to Eve. And the second is here in the wilderness. You know, the Job story is kind of close, but Satan is still in kind of behind the scenes doing a wager with God. And, you know, Job doesn't know that Satan or God are really involved in the stuff that's going on. He's trying, the rest of the book is him trying to figure it out. By resisting the devil, Jesus is not merely rewriting the story of Israel in the wilderness, but by, by reliving a direct temptation, he's rewriting the story of humanity. Jew and Gentile alike, the story that began in the garden. That's Jesus' mission. That's what he's all about. And the, the enemy is just trying to take him off course. All right, that's the first lesson. The second lesson, Jesus' humility constantly exposes demonic pride. Jesus' humility exposes demonic pride. Think about these temptations in the wilderness. You know, they're, they're diff three different temptations, but they, they have a theme. If you're the son of God, feed yourself. Worship me and you'll rule the nations. Go to the highest point of the most prominent building in the city of God's people and jump off and everyone will see you be saved. All three of these are about Jesus's identity, his reputation. They're trying to get Jesus to depend on himself. Henry Nouwen said that these temptations are about relevance, power, and popularity. And he's right, but all of those behind are about pride underneath. Do it yourself. Do it without the Father. Prove your identity. Prove yourself to yourself. Prove yourself to others. Each one of these is the same juicy fruit that hung from the tree in the garden. If you eat it, you won't need God anymore. That's the temptation. Look, a, a lot of modern spiritual warfare uh, stuff, if you've been around sort of the Christian world, it gets, it gets a little strange. It, it gets a little uh, creative. I wonder if that's why so many people avoid the topic. I mean, the idea of spiritual warfare conjures... Conjures might be the wrong metaphor for this. You know, draws out the uh, images of the slick televangelist who is, you know, demonstratively rebuking demons and setting them free, you know, while the uh, information flashes across the screen for where to send in your money. You know, as soon as spiritual warfare becomes about the person performing, it doesn't matter if the little battles are one, the war is being lost, you guys. As soon as it becomes about the person performing, the enemy has it. Luke 4 has three major scenes. It starts in the wilderness, and then, you know, uh, the next major scene is in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, and then the last scene is in Capernaum, Peter's 
hometown. And, you know, the, the first and the last scene, Jesus is dealing directly with demons. But don't for a second think that there's not spiritual warfare happening in Nazareth as well. You know, there he reads from the scroll of Isaiah and he announces this mission of spiritual power, this mission that he, it means to set people free from oppression. And, you know, at first, you know, and then he says, look, I'm the guy who's going to do this. I'm the Messiah. That's what he's saying. And they're all good with that. And then he tells them this, these other stories. He starts telling stories about two of these prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and, and how they went and performed miraculous healings, not amongst the Jewish people, but amongst the Gentiles. And when he's doing that, it enrages his listeners. Why would he step on their toes like that? Why would he tell stories of God sending prophets away from the Israelites to help those Gentiles? <laughs> My gosh. The, the Messiah is supposed to rescue us. We're the special people. Do you see what's happening? Their pride is being challenged. Their sense of national specialness is being challenged. How dare a would-be Messiah even suggest that God would show mercy to Gentiles? And in the most subtle of his defeats of spiritual darkness, they bring Jesus up to a cliff where they're going to kill him. They're going to throw him off the cliff. And it says Jesus simply passes through and goes on his way. I mean, that is gangsta. Like... I mean, that, the way they say it in The Chosen is he's like, he just gets in their face and says, not today, and walks away. Woo! Chills. Here, here's how Shirley Guthrie describes it. He says, if we listen to what Scripture tells us about Satan and his powers of darkness, we will not look for their work only where there's obvious filth, obscenity, and godlessness in the world around us. We will look at ourselves and at the Christian community. It is not only in those godless, unchristian people out there that Satan is at work. He is also at work especially where pious people try to use God to maintain their own personal or social security, prosperity, and power instead of serving God. He is at work not only where people hurt other people and destroy themselves by lust, drunkenness, and immorality of various kinds, but especially where morality, respectability, and law-abiding piety become more important than the needs of other people and an excuse to reject or ignore them. Jesus' humility is all about setting people free, and it makes the, the demonic world angry. All right, third point. The third thing we see from Luke 4. Spiritual warfare is about restoring people. I've touched on this a little bit, but but see Jesus's mission, what he says in that synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, release to the captive, sight to the blind, freedom to those who are oppressed. Jesus is not focused on defeating the devil. He's focused on setting you free. That's what he's about, rescuing you. It's not trying to win against some cosmic enemy, you guys. It, I mean, the victory is never really in doubt. It's never in doubt. 
Anytime the, the demons show up in the stories, there's no drama to it. There may have been a lot of drama for that individual, but as soon as they show up before Jesus, it's over. As a matter of fact, this, um, the cliff that they brought Jesus up to, you know, just outside of Nazareth, at least the, the cliff that's traditionally uh, held to be the, you know, where they were going to throw him off, you, you're looking across one valley at the city of Nazareth, and uh, when you look uh, across, you know, down this very steep, huge cliff, you're looking out over the valley of Megiddo. Now, you, that name might not mean anything to you, but, but that's where, you know, traditionally people say that, that the, Ar the battle of Armageddon will take place. Megiddo, Armageddon, you hear the, the words. Um, so, all right, that, that's an interesting idea. And of course, that was a, a, a really important uh, valley in terms of warfare in that time. But go and read the story of the battle of Armageddon in Revelation. Here's what you'll find. You'll find sort of the enemies who have amassed themselves against Jesus and his people. They're gathering their armies and they're, they, you know, they're all collecting there in the valley. It's like, you know, all of the orcs in the Lord of the Rings scene. They're all growling and whatever. And, you know, it's a, this massive number. And so you're expecting this big, long, dramatic battle. And then Jesus shows up and it's not even half a sentence in Revelation. It's just over. There's no drama to it. Every time these things show up in Scripture, it just demonstrates that they don't stand a chance. It's not like uh, the good God and the bad God trying to fight for victory. That's not the story being told. It's the Lord of the cosmos and some little pest. That's the story being told. What is he about? He's not about trying to win He's destroying the works of the devil because the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but he has come that we would have life and life abundantly. That's what he's about. You need an example from our passage? Well, good, I've got one for you. He goes at the end of, you know, at the end of the passage, he's been in the synagogues and then he goes to Peter's house. And who's there? Peter's mother-in-law. And she's sick in bed with a fever. But this is a strange healing. All the rest of the, the healings in the gospel say Jesus healed them. You know, he, there was this thing and he healed them. But not in this scene. What does he do with the fever? He rebukes it. He speaks to the fever as if it is an enemy. He rebukes the fever and it leaves. And what happens to Peter's mother-in-law is the same thing that happens to anyone who gets restored in the Gospel of Luke. She pops up and starts living her life, her purpose again. She pops up and starts serving them. Like a, like a good Jewish mother-in-law, she, she pops out of bed and makes them supper. It's awesome. Or chicken soup. I don't know. I'm not sure I'll come back from that, Donald. Okay. Years ago, uh, this church, an earlier iteration of this church, we had an active uh, ministry team that did deliverance ministry. And the way it worked is people could, you know, could confidentially sign up and, you know, we would meet on a Tuesday afternoon or whatever and, and, uh, and you know, hear about what was going on with people and, and pray for them. And I'll admit that there was, a, there was a lot that we did in those days that, 
that felt so detailed and so specific, and I'm, I'm not sure where we got all of the ideas that, that we had for how this was to play out, you know, and, and um, so it could get a little demonstrative at times, and, and um, yeah, I'm not sure where we got all of those ideas, but when I zoom out and consider the best moments of those ministry, here's, here's what was going on. I think that we were applying the gospel to the specifically messiest parts of people's lives and their stories. So someone would come in and they were dealing with a, some chronic issue that they couldn't get to the bottom of and they wondered if maybe it's, it's a demon, maybe if it's spiritual darkness. And what would we do? We would go through and, and, uh, and lead them through the process of, of deep, honest confession. We would discover places where there, is, there was bitterness and long-held unforgiveness in their life and encourage them in a forgiveness process. We would go through and find the ways that, that people believed lies that had been told to them, things that had been said to them in childhood or whatever, and we would, we would you know, overcome those lies, so to speak, with the truth of what Scripture said about them. I mean, that's what we were doing. We were applying the gospel detail by detail by detail. And I'm telling you, I mean, the, 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 the most distinct memory I have of this is, you know, we met with all sorts of different people in different situations. But one week, a woman came in and she was dealing with this chronic back pain. She was bent over when she walked in. And we went through this long process and it was a very calm process. And when she left, she was standing up straight and practically skipping to her car. I mean, God's about setting people free. That's what he wants to do. Look, the, that very process of deliverance ministries and that kind of stuff, it can go in the other direction too. It, it can become hurtful too. In fact, a lot of the people I met at the Bridge House during our spiritual discussions, I don't know why I always do this, that's the circle of people. Here's people. Um, you know, and this person over here would tell a story while we're in this spiritual discussion because they dealt with long-term mental illness. And they would tell a story of how they grew up in a fundamental such-and-such -such type of church and that their church was convinced that they had a demon and prayed and prayed and prayed over them. And it didn't get better. And so what did the church do? They kicked them out. They alienated them. They said, you're not welcome back until you repent of the hidden sin that you're dealing with in your life. Friends, you want to know where the spiritual warfare is happening in that situation? It's happening amongst that church. Making people alienate others who are dealing with illness. My gosh. Where's the demon at work? Friends, Jesus is all about restoring people, setting them free. Fourth, final point, spiritual warfare is a battle over identity. Perhaps you've heard this too. You know, I just talked about it in our, in our process. We would help people remember who they are. Perhaps you've, you've heard this, that, that, you know, what the enemy is trying to do is convince you of things that aren't true about yourself, and, and the way to overcome it is to remember all the wonderful things that God says about you, the things that Jesus uh, says to you, you know, the reasons that Jesus claimed you, who you are, who does God say you are. Remember it. Claim it. What, 
What lies is the enemy trying to get you to believe? And, and how can you erase those lies? And, and when you're facing the battle, you can announce your identity like Gandalf on the bridge in the mines of Moria. You know what I'm talking about, some of you. The Balrock, you know, and there he is. You cannot pass. Oh. Here's how Tolkien says it. The orcs stood, stood still and a dead silence fell. And Gandalf says, I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun. Go back to the shadow. You cannot pass. Oh, that's so great. And, and it's not bad advice to remember who you are. In fact, oh gosh, believers, if we walked in the quiet confidence available to us, knowing our identity, but that's not what I mean when I say spiritual warfare is about identity. The central spiritual warfare lesson in Luke 4 is that spiritual warfare is about Jesus's identity. That's what it's about. It's about who God is. What was the serpent's subtle suggestion when he tempted Eve? His suggestion was, God isn't who you think he is. He's holding back from you. He's keeping you down so he can be in power over you. If you eat this fruit, you'll be equal with him. That's a suggestion about who God is. And, and in Luke 4, the first thing that the, that the devil says to Jesus, after all of this stuff in Luke 3, where God says, you are my son, you're my beloved son, and where Luke goes through this long thing where Jesus is the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, and the son and son of, son of, son of, son of, son of Adam, son of God. The first thing that the devil says to Jesus is, if you are the son of God, Turn these stones into bread. It's about his identity. It's a question about his identity. The devil's aim is not really about the temptations themselves, but about the suggestion behind them. Look what the situation you're in. You've been banished, you know, down to earth, down to creation. You know, you're not in the heavenlies anymore. You're not really God's son anymore. God's withholding the rule of the nations from you. In fact, it's been relinquished to me. I'm the one who can give it to you. It's a question of identity. Jesus's and the Father's. What's the tactic of the demons in the synagogue? They shout about Jesus' identity. We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And then the last thing they shout at the end of the chapter is, you are the Son of God. Now, a, a lot of commentators read that and say, okay, well, the, Jesus silences them because they're messing up his timing. You know, he, he's going to reveal that later on, maybe. You know, I think they might also be trying to subtly suggest to people, he's with us. <laughs> he's part of our team. Like, no, 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 you don't get to announce. You're not part of Jesus' team. In Nazareth, after reading the scroll, the people are wondering about Jesus' identity, and what do they ask? Isn't this Joseph's son? The answer, of course, is no. It's not Joseph's son. This is the Son of God, the cosmic Lord, who has entered into human history to set people free. It's wonderful to know your identity, friends. It is. It's wonderful. 
but it is infinitely more important that you get clear on Jesus' identity, on who he is and what he has done. He fights the battle. When, when we arm ourselves with the whole armor of God, like Paul says, you know, it's, it's the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith. What are all of these things? All of these things are terms that tell us about what Jesus has done. He is our salvation. He is our righteousness. He is the word of God. Our faith is in him. The gospel of peace is that he has given us peace. He is the victor. We arm ourselves with the news about him and who he is. You want to resist the devil, friends? All you need to do is draw near to God. Humble yourselves. Gather around the table that he's invited you to. This, this is a demon-free zone. This is where Christ the King invites his brothers and sisters to his table. And we, we eat not hoping for victory, but declaring it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are Lord, that you are not battling for the rights over this universe, but that it is yours. Every inch, every last tiny atom is yours. And Lord, thank you that you have called us to yourself and we get to announce and witness to your victory every day. Jesus, show your glory in the lives of my brothers and sisters. Show your victory. We put our trust in you. Lord, we don't depend on our own skill, on our own knowledge. We depend on you and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.